Revelation. Uh, this is your first time with us or first time in a while. We, we've been in Revelation for a while, but we're only in chapter 4. <laughs> uh, it'll, it'll pick up pace now because we were doing one letter at a time, those seven letters. But now we'll be taking bigger chunks and we're, we'll do all of chapter 4 today. Someone was telling me uh, just this week that they were watching a sermon series that I think did three or four parts just in chapter 4, which is really easy because there's so much there. Um, but I hope that uh, we'll be able to get through it and see what God is communicating to us from Revelation chapter 4. So let's uh, ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Father, this is your word. We want to recognize it as such. We pray that we would receive it with the authority that it has. We would receive it um, with uh, the prayer that we need your grace to live it out. Give us understanding and help us to live up to what we understand, Lord. Give us grace. We need it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I like seeing behind-the-scenes footage or like the bonus materials, right, on, on that movie that you enjoy. Or you might enjoy a novel and then you hear an interview with the author. It gives you a deeper level of understanding of what's going on in that book or in that story. Uh, you hear from the director why they cut certain scenes, why they hired certain actors, and a lot of those things start to make more sense. Uh, if you've ever read a book for a class assignment and you read it and you're like, oh, this book, I don't know, I'm struggling. And then when you get to class and people are talking about it, you're like, oh, that makes a lot more sense, right? When people talk about what's behind it. I know a lot of my friends, before they even read a book, they investigate the author first so that they can get the background info before reading the story. And the reason why I explain that is because I think what we get in Revelation is a little different than what we get in a lot of Scripture. A lot of Scripture talks about the earthly things. Do this, don't do that. Here's what God wants in your life. Here's what you're experiencing in life. And then Revelation peels back the curtain and shows you the behind the scenes. It's like the bonus footage of the Bible so you can see what the director is up to, the decisions that the director is making. And then when you see that behind the scenes, you can watch the movie or read the book and go, I get why this chapter is there. Your life is a story. Our worldly, our, our world existence uh, in this earth is, is like a, a grand play happening, scene by scene. We're all actors, we're all players. What we don't see is what lies behind the curtain, oftentimes. We forget that there's something behind the curtain. Not just something behind the curtain, but someone behind the curtain. Not just a bunch of people running around with little mics and clipboards and making sure people are standing on the, on the tape right, where they're supposed to be, but one person that directs even those people. That's our Heavenly Father. And that's why Revelation is so weird, because when you pull back that curtain, it's, it's just not normal earthly things going on. You've got angels, you've got things that are hard to describe with regular earthly terms, but the attempt is made anyway. And so you've got beasts and dragons and angels with a thousand eyes all over them. Weird stuff, like I told you before, it's, it's difficult to draw it out. You're not supposed to be able to make a painting of these scenes in Revelation, but you're supposed to let the words have their effect on you, understand what those symbols mean to communicate something important about your life. 
And when you look at your life as only what's in front of the curtain, without the perspective of what's happening behind the curtain, like if your life has no director, like if your life has no production team, like if the scene that you're in, it might be a difficult scene, it might be a scene of suffering, but if you're not mindful of the director and the behind-the-scenes stuff, and that's all that's in front of you, that is a dismal outlook on life. And I tell you, even the scenes that where things are going pretty well, that's when we can be most distracted. Right? When you're in a tough scene, you're like, oh, there's got to be a director. But when you're in a good scene, you're like, ah, who cares if there's a director? That, that could be even a more difficult place for us. Well, Revelation chapter 4 starts the rest of the book. What I mean by that is you kind of have these three uh, movements early on in Revelation. Movement one, he saw a vision of Jesus. You remember that? And it was kind of weird. Right? He has the, the sash and the, the wool hair and his face is shiny. You can't, can't even look at it. It's like staring into the sun. This grand vision of Jesus holding seven stars going, I'm in charge of my churches. Right? Then the next thing you get is seven letters to seven churches that Jesus is in charge of. So that's in front of the curtain. So he peels back the curtain. Here's this grand picture of Jesus. Then goes in front and says, like, here's, here's what's happening in these individual churches, the scenes that they're particularly in. They're battling persecution. They're battling heresy from inside the church. They've got sin happening in the church. One church is lukewarm. They're going to be spit out. And you've got all these different situations. And then the question comes, okay, Jesus is in charge of his churches, but what about kingdoms, nations, wars, diseases, viruses, politicians, politics, culture? What about all the stuff outside of the church? And then Revelation 4 goes, that too. That too. God is above all things, including those things that seem out of your control, including those things that are outside of just the four walls of what happens in the church. Check out just the first verse in chapter 4. You'll see how it kind of switches scenes. He just finished these seven letters to these seven churches, very practical, hard-hitting, asking them to endure, charging them to persevere. And then chapter 4, verse 1, John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So there's the curtain, so to speak, open. A door that's normally shut. You don't get to see this. We don't, we don't have the rights to, to go back here. You don't have the pass, right? The VIP pass to go back there. God is giving him a momentary pass to see this heavenly scene, to give him a perspective on the earthly scene. That's what we need. He sees a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, that's the voice he heard back in uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Don't worry about that. There's nothing on there anyway. The first verse, that voice, was Jesus' voice. Okay, so we can assume this is Jesus continuing to reveal things to him, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Probably just really loud. <laughs> right? Said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So from chapter 4 on, we're getting the behind-the-scenes look as what's going to transpire on the earth between Christ's ascension and his return. Okay? Now, some people see it as every chapter is going to give us something next chronologically. First is this, then this, then this, then this, all the way to chapter 22. I don't think so. We'll talk about this in an upcoming sermon. But I think it's a snapshot that he shows several different times. 
he just kind of changes the camera angle, but it's the same movie, okay? Um, we'll get to that. But what we see here is Jesus inviting him behind the curtain or through the door, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. What's going to happen going forward? At once I was in the spirit. Some translations might have spirit small s, meaning this was sort of an out-of-body thing. Uh, or, you know, ESV has it capital S because it's in the spirit of God that he's transported. Either way, he's taken to this, this room and he sees this place that is not normally visited or seen. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So understand this heavenly perspective is for the earthly perspective. Let me just say this one more time and then, and then we're going to move through these really weird details. Okay? The whole purpose of the whole book of Revelation is to give you a heavenly perspective uh, on your earthly experience. That's the entire point. That's the point of the seven letters, the point of the beast, the dragon, uh, Babylon, all of that, the point of all of that, the locusts, okay? The point of all of that is to give you a heavenly perspective on your earthly experience. As he does that, he brings him into this room. You find out it's a throne room in verse 2. A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now I'm going to push through uh, the beginning of verse 8, and then I'll back up and just unpack some of those details. We won't be able, have time to unpack every single thing. But we'll see how all these details kind of are pushing one main agenda. He enters his throne room. God is on the throne. Verse 3, And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper in Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. We'll just pause there and admit that this is weird. Okay? Um, I mean, I've literally met Christians that go, I don't, I'm not really looking forward to heaven. I get it. If you think heaven is a, a scene where you've got creatures flying around that look like ox, you know, there's, oh, there's the ox one with six wings and a thousand eyes. It's just this, it's hard to get excited about the weirdness of it, you know? But I don't think this is a scene going, hey, just endure for a while in this earthly experience with dirt and grass and rocks and, you know, this is so dumb. And can't you wait until you enter this weird realm with flying oxen? Like, does that work for you? Because it wouldn't have worked for them either. They, they would have been like flying eagles. Wow. I mean, okay. I don't think it's to show you a literal scene of heaven to show you this is what heaven's going to look like 
You know, you get to swim in crystal. It's not, this is not what's happening here. The scene doesn't even make sense. How can you have lightning and thunder happening at the same time as a rainbow and at the same time of a sea that's so still you can see right through it like crystal? Those don't really happen at the same time, but it's not really a snapshot of a literal picture. Each of those things is conveying something through the, the symbols. So let's work through them real briefly um, because I don't think each one of them is supposed to stand on its own and you create some doctrine out of each one. They all work together. But let's kind of start from the top and move through and see what is, what is being communicated in this, uh, this majestic, splendorous throne room scene. Well, he who sat there had this, how would you describe it? They didn't have light shows. <laughs> they, they didn't have lasers, right? But he just thought of some of the most beautiful crystals he could think of, gems, and, and said, this is what, the, the splendor that I was looking at was like light going, coming through these multicolored gems, right? We, we don't need to go, oh, emerald. Emerald means this, and it's green, and green means growth, and growth means we're going to grow in heaven. Like, we don't need to do that. These, these are jewels. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And there's splendor. So he who sat there had the appearance. But he, he didn't say, I'm looking at actual Jasper. It, it, you know, he's, he's searching for words that can help describe the splendor. The appearance of Jasper. The appearance of Carnelian. And all around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. How can an, a rainbow be an emerald? This doesn't make sense. I don't want to read anymore. Right? But if you allow symbols to be flexible, you can go, okay, the, the rainbow was real green. You know, it's, it's like the, the purity of an emerald, the brightness of light coming through an emerald. We don't have to press it beyond that. But he's describing this pure, beautiful scene. And it might be echoing creation themes because you've got uh, the sea coming up, which brings us back to creation. We'll get to there in a second. Uh, rainbow is sort of a new creation theme because the importance of the rainbow, as you remember, was Noah and his family coming out of the ark judgment transpired they were saved through the judgment and now they're going to start this sort of new earth right and so rainbow uh kind of echoes back to god uh being in charge of judgment protecting those who he doesn't want to experience that judgment and being in charge of this new creation this whole new earth verse four around the throne were 24 thrones And seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Okay, who are these guys? (laughs) Um, Why are they important? Uh, You know, on on one sense, I I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure. But I'm going to give you what I think is the best assessment that I've seen, the best consensus from, from various commentators and I've, I continue to look at it I think this makes the boat the most sense God is seated on his throne so imagine kind of like this room a square with four sides and then you've got God on the throne right and then around his throne are 24 thrones 12 and 12 and the number 12 is important through the whole book of Revelation the multiple of 144,000, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. How many apostles were there? 12. Do you remember in the book of Acts, which is Luke's second volume, 
Just press in just a little bit. Some of you know, I don't remember that. That's okay. Go, go back and check it out. The book of Acts, you remember, Jesus ascends. The disciples are like, what? And then the angel comes out, why are you staring into heaven? Go do what you're supposed to do, which was what? Wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they start evangelizing the whole world, right? So the angel tells them, why are you looking into heaven? Go do what you're supposed to go do. And they're like, okay. And the next thing we remember is they're in the upper room praying, and the Spirit descends, and they start speaking in tongues, right? But there's a little episode right in between there. After the angel's like, go do what you're supposed to go do, and before the Spirit comes upon them and they go do what they're supposed to do, there's a little episode right in there where Peter stands up in front of all the disciples and said, we have a problem. The 11 apostles, are, the 12 apostles are down to 11 because of Judas' death. That's a problem. So who we got? Who do we got? You remember? And then, you know, then they, they, uh, they whittled it down to two uh, disciples and they cast lots like, Lord, you decide, and it landed to Matthias who became the new 12th apostle, okay? And then it goes to Pentecost. It, it's, a quick, it's a quick scene, but here's what's lost on us, the importance of the number 12. That, the whole point of it was, this kingdom of God will not spread throughout the earth if it's limping on an incomplete table, okay? It's like Arthur doesn't have all his knights around the table. One of them's missing. I need that 12th guy. Why? Because 12 represents God's full kingdom. It did in the Old Testament, 12 tribes, right? 12 tribes represented God's kingdom. In the New Testament, that's represented by 12 apostles. This is completion. So I think the 24 thrones, and many other commentators think the 24 thrones with the 24 elders on them are maybe angelic representations of all of God's people, God's kingdom. They represent us. And here's some evidence for that. Uh, why are they on thrones? Does God share his throne? Does Jesus share his throne? Well, not that prominent one in the middle, but you remember when we were reading the seven letters, he's like, hey, if you guys persevere all the way, I'll give you the right to join me in reigning. That came up a couple of times. So who has thrones? God's people, God's kingdom. It's a kingdom imagery to sit on a throne. Who receives white garments? Believers. Who receives crowns? Believers. Right? So he's using all these symbols to, to, to show you these 24 elders represent believers. Not everyone on the earth, just believers who reign with God, who reign with Christ, and it doesn't feel like you're sitting on a throne. It doesn't feel like you're part of a kingdom because when you look around you in your earthly existence, it looks like there's this big kingdom that you're missing out on and you feel like you're getting fo- a bad case of FOMO. Uh, those of you older than 33 can go look that up later. But you're not. They're missing out. Because the real kingdom, the reigning kingdom, the one who's on the throne with his shared power and shared reign is only for those who have the inside knowledge of what's going on behind the scenes. The director's cast. The director's people. So the 24 elders represent God's people, God's congregations throughout the earth. And the word elder is used because they had elders representing the tribes in the Old Testament. And elders are supposed to be in every church in the New Testament. So it's an appropriate term to represent God's church throughout uh, the earth. They're seated on their thrones. They're clothed in white garments. 
They are, they are given golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne, the big one, the one in the middle, the one that stands above all the other ones, there's flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. Do you remember when God appeared to the people, his people in Exodus? And there's thunder and lightning and it's crazy and it's loud. And they're like, whoa, Moses, you talk to him and then just give us the, the cliff notes. You know, debrief us after you go talk to him. And here you just have the elders sitting there on their thrones. Okay with it. God's sheer power is able to be withstood by these because of their coverings in the white garments because they've been brought into the throne room. So it's scary. He's fearsome, but not to the people that are brought in. And then before the throne were seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We unpacked this, I don't know, maybe five or six sermons ago, I think, uh, where that represents the Holy Spirit connecting to Zechariah. And you can go back for that. So the seven spirits of God is the Holy Spirit. uh, And then verse 6, the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Real quickly, uh, I talked about that creation theme in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, but what was the earth like? A big ball of void, massive water, right? And then out of that dark water, he created order. But then sin happened. And from that point, big, dark, scary water represents judgment. The Red Sea collapsing on the Egyptians, the flood that flooded the earth that Noah was saved from, etc., etc. Even baptism represents this death right? But rather than dark, chaotic, churning waters with beasts in it, you have a a still, clear as crystal glass sea. And I think we're not supposed to go, how is his throne? Is it hovering above the water then? Are they, they all have wings then? Too literal. God is a God not of chaos, but of order. God is not a God of craziness, right? but of peace. And what he brings his people into to join him in his reign, they are not susceptible anymore to judgment and death, but peace, serenity, harmony, joy. That's the image. And then around the throne, on each side of the throne, this is probably, if we were forced to draw a picture This is probably between the 24 thrones and the one in the front on the four sides. You have these weird creatures, okay? Around the throne, on each side of the throne, one, two, three, four, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The living creature, like a lion, or the first living creature, like a lion, the second living creature, like an ox, the third living creature, with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. Guys, the only reason why this is important is not because there's weird mutants waiting for us on the other side, okay? The reason why this is important is what it represents. And there's several layers to what it represents. But throughout the book of Revelation, the number four typically refers to the earth. The four corners of the earth. You can think of the four directions of the earth, north, south, east, west. It's covered, okay? This is not, you know, John saying that there's you know, four corners of a square that is the earth. It's not geography, but what it's saying is, in every direction, God's majesty is over it. And so you've got these four living creatures, full of eyes, representing God's sight, 
Uh, why, why are they wearing the eyes if it's God's sight? Uh, have you ever heard of an employer leaving the company for a day and putting another employee in charge and say, I need you to be my eyes and ears while I'm gone, right? It's that concept. It's God's vision throughout the earth. It's what he sees because he's the judge, but these creatures sort of are embodying that in this imagery and in this symbolism. The first creature, like a lion, the second looks like an ox, the third one has the face of a man, and then one looks like an eagle. And, of course, as with many of these details, there's debates as to what's going on there. But I think what we can at least understand is if the 24 elders represent God's church in the earth, these four creatures represent the rest of life on the earth. The animal kingdom and the rest of men and women on the earth. So the four directions of the earth, God's vision that goes throughout all the earth, he sees all the earth, he sees all things happening in the earth, And then you've got these creatures that represent his kingdoms, the ones that crawl on the earth, the ones that fly, okay? Um, And then some have pointed out that these creatures seem to represent the the top of their class. The ox is the the king of the working animals, and then the the lion is the king of the jungle. I don't know, whatever, right? The eagle is the king of the the flying birds or whatever so like sort of the pinnacle representation of birds working animals predatory scary animals even mankind is all represented in these creatures and just one more thing to prove it it's it's not actual you know ezekiel talks about these creatures and when ezekiel talks about it each one has four faces right the same four faces, but each one has the four faces. Now John sees them, and each one has one face. There's an eagle one, an ox one. You're like, which one is it? When we go to heaven, we're not asking, hey, where are those four guys? What we're, this is not for us to have a preview of our existence in heaven. This is for us to have a better view of our existence on earth. That's the point of Revelation. Not to prepare you mentally for what it's going to be like in heaven. It's to prepare you spiritually for what it is like now on earth so that you can make it to heaven. And that's a big difference. Why are there four living creatures? Because they represent the earth. Why do they look like these animals? Because they represent the earth. Why do they have eyes all over them? Because God's vision goes throughout the earth. It all ties together into one theme. So that God's throne doesn't just rule heaven. This description of emeralds and jewels it's, it's a, and the whole setup, the temple scene. And God's temple rules the earth. Okay? So this throne room is not just in charge of the little room that it's in, or big room that it's in, but it's in charge of all the earth. And then verse 8 uh, leads us into the function of these creatures. What do the Psalms remind us? All creation sings praise to God. And so these four living creatures, each of them with six wings, that takes you back to Isaiah 6. So these might be representing seraphim. They're full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is, and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So now we get led going on in God's throne room. What's going on in God's throne room is worship and praise. And what we see here is that the four living creatures that represent God's deserving praise from all life, from all creatures, and then he gets specific praise from the 24 elders that represent his people, his kingdom, and they fall down before him and they worship him who is seated on the throne. They cast their crowns before him, claiming that he's the one that's worthy. So here's what's happening in this whole vision, this whole scene. The heavenly perspective is necessary for us to have the right earthly perspective. Then what we see is that that heavenly perspective is about the exaltation of God. The exaltation of God. So, when I'm playing out my scene, and I only think of it as me, myself, I'm the director, I'm in charge, this is about my life. It's the Truman Show. All eyes on me. I'm not a player. I'm the guy. That's my life. And then when things go wrong, it's very upsetting. My life isn't supposed to go like this. It's supposed to go like this over here. Change of perspective. I'm playing a part in a grander story. And for that story to be the best that it can be, if I have to endure something, suffer something, for that grander story to be even grander, I'll play my part. Why? Because my story is not about the exaltation of Lucas. My story is about the exaltation of God. What's happening in the throne room is supposed to happen on earth. And so we see the center of everything is God, but not just God detached, but God worshipped. God worshipped. God worshipped. Why? Because of, look at his attributes. He is thrice holy, 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 holy. He is the Lord God Almighty over all things. He has power. He is omnipotent. He didn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. He is the one who was. He is the one who is. And he is the one who is to come. Now theologians tend to park on the first and the third. He didn't have a beginning and he doesn't have an end. But notice, in the middle, it's not like he disappears In the beginning, God created. In the end, Jesus returns. In the meantime, I don't know. Y'all just figure it out. He's reigning now. I don't see him reigning. Right? You're seeing it in chapter 4. If we were able to open that door or peel back that curtain and see what's going on with the director, he's not asleep. He's not on vacation. There's not a sign hanging on his door that says, gone fishing. He is actively over all things now. Even while Jezebel was wrecking the church, even while the, the, uh, the Rome was persecuting the church, even while the synagogue of Satan, so to speak, was helping Rome persecute the church, even while all those things were going on, their earthquakes, their poverty, the situations that we saw in these different churches that make, might make them think 
Man, is God, God was and God maybe will be, but is he? Yes. He was and he is and he is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who was seated on the throne, and now this is twice given to us, who lives forever and ever. The things we busy ourselves with are temporary, short, flimsy, weak. God is the true meaning of all things because he is forever and ever. And then says it again, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. I know I heard you the first time, John. I read it the first time. I know I'm giving it to you again because I don't want you to miss it. It's his eternality that gives him his worth. And they cast their crowns before that throne saying, worthy are you, God, worthy because you do stuff for me. Worthy are you, God, because you make my life comfortable. Worthy are you, God, because I prayed and I got the things that I wanted when I prayed, like a grand vending machine. Nothing to do with me. Worthy are you because of who you are, not what I get out of it. Worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You may not be comfortable with all the things that he created. You may not like all the things that exist, but they all come from his hand. And this is why some people hate God. Because they want God on their terms. And the real God is not on our terms. His throne is way up here. He's above And he's worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Not when we think he's done enough to make our lives comfortable. He's writing this, delivering this vision to churches that are highly uncomfortable. It's very difficult to be a Christian. You can be killed to be a Christian. And his message to them is not, hey, I know, sorry, (laughs) Rome is really tough. I'm over Rome. Caesar? Caesars come and go. They can build statues and stuff. They come and go. In fact, they build statues because they know they're about to go and they want something that stands longer than their puny little fragile life. I don't need a statue. I stand forever and ever. You'll see that the credit is given to him in sort of this weird order in verse 11. He could have said, you had the will to create things And then you created them, but it does it the other way. You created all things, and then it gives us the reason behind it. Why did God create it? Because he felt like it. A Lucas translation. That's what it says. By your will, they existed and were created. That right there will transform your life if you let it. That right there will give you the heavenly perspective you need to live out your earthly life if you let it. All things that are created, all things that exist, they're created and they're there by his will. Now, we can get into his permissive will, his direct decree. At the end of the day, God is on watch. He didn't fall asleep, turned his back. Ooh, Satan did something. Oops. Even Satan is on God's leash. Goes as far as God lets him to go. All things are before him. He is over all things. And that is the heavenly perspective we need. This exaltation of God above all things. Not just a God who's transcendent and different and detached, but a God who's connected to his creation, 
because he brought it into being. God is involved. You'll notice this whole vision started out with the throne a couple times at the top, describing that this is actually a a description of a a throne room in verse 2. The word throne appears 38 times between chapters 4 and 22. 38 times. 17 of them are just 4 and 5. Throne, 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 throne. Now, a throne is not just a seat with a really high back that makes everybody in that room uh, think of the majesty of the person sitting on the throne, but it's also a representation of their reign, right? Their reign. Anybody could build a really fancy chair and not be in control of anything at all. But what the fancy chair is t- intended to communicate is rule and reign. Deists believe in God. They just believe he's detached. That's the difference between a deist and a theist. Deists aren't like, oh, God doesn't exist. God exists. He's just, he's not paying any attention. He's not, he just spun the world into existence, let it go. Whatever happens, happens. Christians are theists. Because God didn't just create, throw it into space, and then sit back or go to some other multiverse and do something else, right? But he's actively involved. And all of the storyline, all of the whole movie is moving toward the climactic scene of pure worship where all those who hate worship are put somewhere else. Here we have the scene to remind us of a few things and I'll just make a few notes and then we'll close these key terms that are used in this worship scene help inform our worship even our congregational worship okay and I think for a long time churches have debated about style of music which I think misses the point you have churches we're a hymn church and then churches like we're a rock band church right um And this does touch on that too because I think sometimes churches that want to rock out for worship are trying to be cool. And I don't don't get that sense here. I don't get the sense that God's throne room is set up in a certain way to help the world, to help Rome feel like God's throne room is relevant. He doesn't care what Rome thinks about his throne room, see? And so there's this, this transcendent part of worship that we should try to have there, right? And so when we come and we worship, we're like, I'm not sure if I understand some of those words. I would never listen to that on my Spotify channel. Like, it just doesn't groove. That's not the point. The point is not to do songs here that you would work out to. You know what I mean? The point here is to go, let's step out of this earthly scene for a moment and do the best we can to capture this otherworldly scene and to capture some of that, it might take some, some words that we don't normally use. And maybe somebody wrote something really awesome back in the 1600s and we're going to revive that and put that up there. Why? Because we're trying to, uh, the 1600s vibe, we're trying to bring it back? No, because it talks about God ordaining everything, that's why. And a lot of the rock tunes that get churned out by big mega churches don't talk about that. That's why. Ben and I aren't sitting back there like, man, we just need more hymns because the the style of hymns is so cool. Not style. Substance. Substance. If more modern music had more substance, maybe we'd get more modern stuff in there. And if you find stuff, please send it to us. But look at the focus. The focus is God. The focus is His holiness. 
his, his might, his eternality, that he is worthy to receive all the glory, all the power. The other thing that we can take away from this is not just how it informs our worship corporately and on your own, but it also helps us have the perspective that we need through trials, whatever you're facing. Those things that remind you of your mortality, that remind you that life is short, or that remind you that life is difficult, this is the perspective we need. What is life actually for? Whether you're a man, an eagle, an ox, you know, it doesn't matter. What is all of life creation? What is it for? It is for God's exaltation, whatever it takes to bring glory and honor to God. Left to ourselves, none of us gives a rip. We don't care. I don't care. So I'm not going to see a trial in my life and go, I love this trial. The verse that Ben brought up earlier from James. I'm having so much joy in this trial. Who does that? Who says that? Outside of a miracle of God. To change my heart from caring about myself to caring about God's glory. So then I go, okay, might this bring more glory to God? If I worship God, even though I'm suffering with this sickness, I still am a worshiper? That really chafed Satan. We saw that in Job, right? And sometimes that's the way of it. We don't always get answers. We don't always, don't always get answers for specific difficulties in our lives. Why this trial? Look at the seven churches. How come that church had this and this church, this church was poor and this church had, was rich? What's up with that? Everyone's got a different situation. And God doesn't necessarily come in and say, the reason why you have this is that, and the reason why you have that is this, and we'll just form a long line or climbing up into Santa's lap instead of asking for gifts. We're just asking for specific answers to things that bother us. And we search for the Bible like, man, I don't have specific answers. We have one big answer, which is I'm the director and I'm in control of all these scenes. Some of those scenes are very uncomfortable. But persevere and you'll sit on the throne with me. Trust that when you open the curtain, it's not an empty director's chair. I'm sitting on my throne ruling and reigning and all you need to concern yourself with is worship and let me take care of everything else give me glory and honor and then when you conquer trust me one day you're not going to go we did it god and give him a fist bump you're going to take your crown and throw it on the ground and realize you were there the entire way you brought me through i crossed that finish line because you brought me through you bring all things into existence by your sheer will it wasn't because i was so awesome And the reason why this entire scene is possible is because of that transformation that we need in our hearts. You know, to to think about the glory of God as something that we desire is to become a true Christian. And that heart change is what we talked about at the communion time, Christ taking over. And and until that happens, we don't care. (laughs) We don't care about what we were created to care about, which is the worship of God. We need Christ for that. We need Christ for that. And for those of us who are in, we need to remind ourselves that we need Christ for that. Um, and so I want us to do that now as we close in this time of worship. I don't know what you're, what, I know what some of you are dealing with, but I don't know what everybody's dealing with and, and all the details because I don't have God's vision, right? But you take that before the Lord. You take that before the Lord and say, God, give me the heavenly perspective to deal with this earthly reality because I'm feeling crushed by it right now and let God speak to you 
through this passage to say, it's not going to crush you. It's going to be tough, but it's not going to crush you. You're going to be a conqueror if you're in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that whatever is waiting for us outside these doors, whatever challenge, difficulty, we may not be aware of it today. Maybe we find something out tomorrow that's it's hard. We pray that you would give us the perspective we need. Help us to remember who's sitting on the throne, who really is reigning and ruling and in charge. And God, we need grace to see it. We need faith to see it because we don't get uh, the privilege of entering that throne room. Uh, but we, we do get to see it through John's vision. We do get to see it from your word, not just in Revelation 4 all over. And so as we close in this song, we pray that you would build this vision into our lives so that we care about the heavenly view of our earthly lives. We pray that others would take note of that, that we live for something much greater than what lies directly in front of us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and we'll